What? They're ready. Okay, you're ready. All right. We usually have to like get you ready, but thank you. Um, good morning, 11 o'clock. See, you guys are lame. Like first service, they're jumping up and down. Like they all got their coffee and their kids are downstairs, so they're happy, right? Uh, but you guys just woke up and stumbled in. Um, it's good to see you. My name is Derek. I'm the pastor here. So if you're new with us, um, that's who I am. And uh, this is Jeff. Thanks, Jeff, for sort of a sort of a white stripes morning. It was great. It was Jack and Meg White up here. Um, that went over like a thank you. Thank you. So. Here's the thing, uh, there, when it comes to knowing what God wants for like particular parts of our lives, like where we should work, who we should date, who we should marry, should we have kids, should we not have kids, and should I take this promotion or whatever, knowing what God wants in each of those situations is by and large fairly mysterious. Like it's very hard to figure that out. It's very, and it takes, it takes people around you, it takes advice, it takes counsel, it takes prayer. But even still, like, it can be very difficult to determine what God wants specifically in all these different areas of our lives. And so it's just kind of this long process of discovery and, and, and learning along the way and making bad decisions and having him pull you back in and you know, picking you back up and dusting you off and sending you on your way to a new direction. And, but again, it's, so, it, it's very mysterious, that process of knowing uh, what God wants in all these different parts of our lives. But there are three things, at least, uh, that as far as what God wants for us, they are the same for all of us. So there are three things today that uh, God wants for each of us that's all the same. Nobody has uh, more or less. God doesn't want more of this for one person versus another. It's all equal. Uh, and let me tell you what those are. And there, there are obviously more than three, but the three that we're going to talk about over the next uh, three Sundays are these three. And I'll start at the end of the series and back up to what we're going to do today. But the one thing that is the same for everybody is that, and I'll just say humanity in this, that one of God's desires and very specific plans for humanity is that humanity leverages itself for the greatest good. That's through and through the scriptures. Like, you can't read the scriptures without running into that face first, that God wants us as people to leverage what we have for the good of those who don't have. You can attach a word to this called service, like just a life of service. You have an ear for service, a heart for service, an eye for service, that wherever we are, rich or poor, we have something that somebody needs, and there's this call on everybody's life, not more for one, less for the other, but we all live a life uh, where we are tuning our ears and hearts uh, to the needs of others, and we serve. We say this often around here, and we believe that it is true, that you are, as an individual, uh, the answer to someone's prayers. Like someone is praying for a need to be met emotionally, relationally, financially, whatever, spiritually, and that you have uh, the resources and the tools or the encouraging spirit or the hospitality or whatever it is. You have what it what that person needs, and God is essentially calling you to meet that need. I mean, all of us in some ways are the answer to someone's prayers. Um, we're, we're not here floating through without that truth in our lives. And so service is such a thing that um, is the same for all of us. No one is exempt from that. All of humanity is called leverage itself for the greatest good uh, for those around us. Another thing uh, when it comes to faith uh, is that 
one of the things that God wants for everybody is that your faith moves to the next level. Whatever, whatever that is. Like some of you have been uh, Jesus freaks for all your life. Like that's just what you do. You know all the songs. You know all the moves. You've got all the Bibles. And you know, the, you know the story through and through. And you've been a follower of Christ for a long time. You would say your whole life. And then some of you on the other end of the spectrum are brand new to the whole story. And it's confusing to you. There's a lot of doubts and questions and concerns. You have some, maybe some painful past uh, with church. You may have some spiritual injury. You may just be uh, straight up like, I just don't even know what I believe. And so you're just on that end of the spectrum. But whatever it is, again, it's not more or less for anybody. God is simply saying, take the next step wherever you are. You know, take the next step in your faith wherever you are. And you can call this growth, like just grow, like don't not grow, grow. And uh, so there's this plan that God has for everybody. It's the same. It's that you grow, it's that you mature in your faith, that you move forward, wherever that is, you take the next step. And then today, uh, what we'll talk about this morning is that the third thing, which is actually the first thing, because we're starting today. See, it's just all creepy. Um, The thing that God wants for all of us is that we do not uh, do life, especially faith, alone, that we have partnerships with people, that we're in community, that we're in relationships uh, with people uh, that matter and that can support us and that can carry burdens with us, and also that we can carry burdens for. And so community is such a big, such a big word around here. Those three words, community, growth, and service, really uh, function as a driving force for us and every church. I mean, that's just what it is about. And what we do in here, although it's very important, and I would say it's quite a divine thing what we do in here, we, we huddle together, we worship, we learn together, we share in the communion together at the end of each service. Uh, really, as important as that is, what is most important is what happens when we leave. Uh, and we do Monday through Saturday out there, and then we come back in here for an hour to rehuddle uh, and to be encouraged. But what we do out there and how we serve one another and how we grow in our faith and if we're in community, that's the most important thing. Um, you know, exiting these rows and getting into circles and making sure we're doing uh, life together in some way. Those, those three things, you never have to question whether God wants those things for you. Now, whether you take a promotion or marry this person or date that person, I don't know. But God is very clear on at least these three things. You're, you live a life of service, you grow in your faith, you take next steps, and you don't do life alone. You put yourself in circles where you can carry burdens and people can carry uh, your burdens. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, is that cool? doesn't matter. I have your, I have your attention. Um, I have been a pastor my entire adult life. I worked at Chick-fil-A in high school and I got fired from Kroger. Those are the only two jobs I've ever had that, uh, that I didn't make my living because we passed a hat. Like I just, that, I, I've always been a pastor my adult life and I'm 40 years old. So it's almost half my life now that I've been doing what I do. And so therefore I don't really remember what it's like to walk into a church building for the first time. Like, I don't know what that's like anymore. Maybe you're new today and it was kind of creepy coming into like, what is in that bunker that's on that hill? Like, let's just go because I want to see what's in there. Uh, I don't know what that's like anymore. Now, uh, we may go to Buckhead Church around the corner when my friend Billy Phoenix is preaching live there. So we'll go and we'll go on Sunday night and just, but even then it's not the same because I already know the deal. Like I can, actually it's quite fun to go to a church that you're not the pastor of because they don't need you to do anything and you don't really care. Like you're just sort of walking around and you get a bulletin. You don't have to fix a chair. You don't have to pick up a pencil. You don't have to say anything. You don't even have to, you don't have to sing. You know, I don't have to sing. I can just stand there and like you guys do on Sundays and just look (laughs) and just look at the band. Like I can be one of you. Like it's so cool. I can do that. Um, But 
It's not the same as me like sitting on that fence for months and then finally just tipping one way and saying, okay, we're going to go. And you walk in and it can just be really strange. I don't know what that's like anymore. I do remember the first time I went to youth group. Now, we had gone to church as kids, uh, but then we took a nice, I don't know, 10-year break. And then uh, around the age of 16, we started going back to church, and uh, I went to youth group, uh, and they said, hey, come back tonight. We got this thing at this clubhouse in a pool, and you should come. It's going to be really fun. That's all they told me. And they said, it's at this clubhouse. I said, okay, great. So I got the directions. And uh, that night, I got in my car, 1980 Honda Accord hatchback. The speakers were just laying in the back seat. It was a totally awesome ride. And I drove to the clubhouse, and um, I got dressed up for the occasion. I wore shorts, flip-flops, and an REM t-shirt from the Green Tour, 1989. Thank you. Stand in the place where you live, baby. Got to the clubhouse, walked in, heard the music. Uh, it was loud. I was like, that's cool. And there was a hallway to get into the main big room. And so I had to walk through this hallway and the music's loud and you can hear people yelling and you know it sounded like, okay, this is gonna be a fun evening. And I'm halfway down the hall and I noticed that the youth pastor who I'd met uh, that morning walks past the hallway and he's wearing a tuxedo, uh, which I was like, I think I've heard that youth pastors are weird, so whatever, he's wearing a tuxedo, you know. So I walk into the room, and the first thing I notice is that everybody's dressed up. Like, the girls are in prom dresses, the guys are in suits and ties, like, these are high school kids, and I look like the pizza guy that brought the pizza. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and I'm too far in the room to get out without everybody noticing, like, who let the pizza guy in? Like, and so I'm just standing there, and it's a really odd moment because a lot is hinging on the next few moments. You know what I'm saying? Like, what are they going to say? What are they going to do? Can I get out of here? Do they see me? And what happened next, really, I would say, was a tipping point for me because uh, some people that I had met that morning, some students that came up to me, and they grabbed me by the arm and saying, hey, glad you came. Let me go introduce you to some friends. And within minutes, guys were taking their ties off. It was almost like they had been trained. Like, if an underprivileged student comes in, That's what it felt like. It was like, they've been, this is, you know, somebody in the back went, you know, they called a play, like, we're going to turn two here. I don't know what that means, but, uh, and everybody got casual, you know, like, to make the one person feel bad. I don't know if that, I mean, that's my only, my first experience, really, of uh, feeling what it was like to walk into a place I wasn't sure about and really scared as to whether or not I was going to meet anybody or connect with anybody. That was my first story, and I don't know what your first story is, and the thing about coming to a church is that sooner or later you're going to hear somebody like me stand up and say, hey, you need to meet some people and you need to get to know some others. You need to like get into community with people. You need to share some life uh, together. And I would say this, again, having done what I do for 20 years, almost 20 years now, I would say that the health, and I want you to hear this as clearly as uh, I can make it, uh, but the health of our faith really depends so much on how well uh, the church is structured socially uh, and how well that the church handles exiles that come into uh, its midst looking for a home. Like a church can be great at teaching and singing and prayer and serving and all that, but if it's not good socially, if it's not 
ready for exiles, people who are looking for a home, people who are new, people who are curious, people who are scared, people who are out of place. Like if it's not ready for that, then it, it impacts our faith. It impacts the faith of those who come in. It's a very delicate balance. And so the health of our faith depends so much on how well we as a congregation do socially and how we treat uh, exiles who come in looking for a home. Uh, we used to say this in host team training years and years ago here. Uh, hey, listen, we're not nice to people when they come in for the first time, like people at the doors with the name tags. We're not nice to people because that, you know, so that they'll come back. We're nice to people because they're people. Are you with me? Like, you can, you can tell, like when you go to Best Buy, like, stop talking to me, right? But in the church world, it's like, we just, everybody's a greeter. You know, we've got people with name tags to help people find parts of the building where they don't know where they go because they're new. But honestly, everybody is enlisted as a greeter. Everybody's enlisted as a host team. We must be a place of hospitality, all of us. And so we're nice to people, not because that's a growth strategy, but, but because they're people. And uh, we're called to be uh, welcoming in that respect. I want to show you uh, a verse of Scripture that some of you may be very familiar with, and we come back to this about once a year, uh, but it's from Acts 2.42. And for those of you who are new to the Bible, this is a, uh, I'll explain this as we run through it, but this is, a, this is such a central uh, verse in all of the New Testament. And as you can see on the screen, it says, and they, he's talking about the first Christians here, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching uh, and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread, and then it closes with, and the prayers. Um, so we're just going to leave this up here for a while, and I want to tell you a little bit about what's happening. This is the first description in the New Testament of the church. Um, it comes after the story of a festival that happened every year in Jerusalem called Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, thus the name Pentecost. Okay. Uh, so it's this festival that happens every year in Jerusalem. It still happens. And all sorts of, you know, the, the city fills up with people. Uh, the numbers are always inflated and, you know, it's hard to really figure out how many people would descend upon Jerusalem. Josephus, who lived at the time following Jesus, that generation following Jesus, wrote as a historian that, that something like a million people filled the city of Jerusalem during Pentecost and Passover. I mean, just this amazing amount of people. And from all kinds of backgrounds and language groups and people groups and nations and places around the known world at the time, they descended upon Jerusalem for this festival uh, every year. And it was at that festival where uh, God began the church. Like, it's like, it's such a, such a statement about what God was going to do in the world that, hey, we're going to begin the church when the whole world's there, that it's for everyone, right? And so the church begins, and it's a pretty incredible moment. There's a story of uh, like 3,000 people being baptized in, the, in, you know, in Jerusalem. It's, inc it's incredible. And then the very next thing that we get is Luke, the writer, uh, and an eyewitness to this, is is giving us this small picture of what the church looked like in its earliest days, and I would say at its best. And the key word here uh, in the text, as you can see it, is this word devoted. There was a devotion to some things. Not this crazy, blindsided, brainwashed devotion kind of thing that we think of. Not like a, you know, um, an extremist but there's this deep-seated desire to grow in some areas, and they're devoted, as you can see, to the apostles' teaching, 
the fellowship and the breaking of bread, and then it says to the prayers. Now let's just start with the bookends, teaching and prayer. Um, the prayers, uh, it's plural there because the church is still very Jewish in the first years. I don't know if you know this, but Christians in the early days, the very first Christians, they still went to synagogue. There were no church buildings. Like Jesus didn't rise from the dead and then churches got built. That's not how it worked. They still, what, what early Christians saw themselves as, and they were mostly Jewish people who basically saw themselves as living in the time when God sent a Savior and were now like completed Jewish people. Like that's what they saw themselves as. It's like Jewish people who were blessed to live during the days when the Messiah came. Like that's how they saw themselves. So they still went to synagogue on Saturdays. And you got to imagine that was a little weird. And it was really like a generation or so before finally somebody in the synagogue went, you crazy people got to go. Like it was just, you got to imagine like Christians and Jews still worshiping together because the Christians don't know where to go. And so there's some tension inside the synagogue and they still just went every Saturday like they've done their whole lives, which meant that they also paid attention to the prayers that they always prayed, these prayers, these Jewish uh, memorized prayers. They would go to the temple three times a day and so they would devote themselves to that. And so there's still this devotion to this inner life, also this corporate life of prayer. But on the other end, the other bookend is that they're devoted to teachings, specifically the apostles' teachings. And the apostles were the people who hung out with Jesus, the first leaders of the first church. Uh, and in fact, in some of these synagogues, the apostles would have been present, sharing the stories of Jesus, sharing their experiences with Jesus, and so on and so forth. So there's this deep-seated devotion and desire to learn and to be a people of prayer in the church. But the thing that Luke puts in the middle is something we often blow past because it just doesn't seem so profound. But basically, when Luke says they also devoted themselves to fellowship and the breaking of bread, a loose translation of this is essentially Luke is saying, and they hung out with each other. Like that doesn't sound that spiritual, does it? We're so much more drawn to the bookends. Like, I want to go to a church that's really good at prayer, and I agree, that's a healthy thing. I, I want to go to a church that's really strong in teaching. But as soon as we start saying things like, hey, let's get together and hang out over food, no. That's not spiritual. That's not, like, profound enough. That's not challenging enough. And I would argue that a lot of us, because there's this fear of being known, I'll talk about this in a moment, but like a lot of us would rather stay in the academic setting because that's just so much easier than getting personal. So I'm going to be devoted to the teachings, but not to the fellowship and breaking bread. Now, what does fellowship and breaking the bread mean? Like, it's a strange sort of thing. The word fellowship is the word koinonia. It's a playoff of a word, uh, the word is koinos, which means in common. And the word fellowship koinonia is really kind of a non-word. It was made up to describe what was going on. It's like the word Google that's now a verb. Like, what is that? This is kind of like the same sort of thing when they're looking at the way the church is acting socially with one another. There's this word that comes out of a root word for in common, and they call it fellowship, koinonia, which is this special kind of, you know, the church is so good socially that it needs its own kind of made-up term to describe it, and fellowship is what we get. And what does it mean? It's this profound relational commonality and great diversity like somehow because remember this is Pentecost we're following Pentecost there's all these different nations all these different language groups are now interacting as 
believers in Jesus, and yet amidst the great diversity, there's some kind of unity. And so they're looking at it and saying, that's uncommon that they have so much in common because they don't really have anything in common. And so we're just going to give them this phrase. There was a time here a few years ago that uh, my friend who was working here at the time, Jamie, uh, I just spun my chair around and I said, how many languages do we have in our building? And we began to sort of at least write down the names of the people that we know, that we personally knew uh, from this church. And it was like around 16 different languages exist in our church at that time. And what did we do? We thought it would be so cool uh, to put all of them on the stage and have them read uh, a psalm in their own language at the same time, which was chaos. <laughs> it was awesome. And of course, the, the Latin one went longer. Like it was, you know, it was awesome, you know. Um, but there was something about how they were relating to one another and so welcoming and hospitable that they get, they get like a new term, this deep-seated fellowship um, with one another. There's a, a quote I want to read to you from uh, Shannon Nyquist's book called Bread and Wine. And she says, the genius of the communion, the Lord's Supper, the Mass, the bread and the juice, the genius of communion, of bread and wine, is that bread is the food of the poor and wine is the drink of the privileged. And that every time we see those two together, we are reminded of what we share instead of what divides us. So the very act of communion that we celebrate each and every week is a reminder of what God has brought together. Polar opposites, holy and dirty, and sacred and profane are all together. And fellowship is a word that describes this commonality that really is mysterious. It doesn't really exist. I mean, if we took a poll in here, none of us have all that much in common. Um, we all come from different towns. We all come from different backgrounds. Some of us, you know, we got architects in here. We got designers. We got cartoonists. We got couch surfers. <laughs> we got uh, we got everything. We got all kinds of faith stories and backgrounds. Uh, we don't really share all that much in common, and yet Jesus is supposed to be the thing that brings us together. And when we take the bread and the juice, among many of the messages that it reminds us of, it's two things that normally shouldn't be together. And we bring them together, the poor and the rich, and you just insert the other categories, but opposites of one another. And we find commonality in that. But again, just to keep it simple, <laughs> Luke is just saying, these people, like, they hung out. Like, they hung out, they broke bread together, the sharing of a meal. Uh, some, you know, some of this is about communion itself, like the breaking of the bread is about communion. But again, in those days, communion didn't unfold like it unfolds here. We've got like, you know, there are communion bread companies now. Like, that's, that wasn't happening then. Like, it was just a meal. It was like any other meal. And when a, when a Jewish prayer is prayed over a meal or a home or a marriage or anything... It becomes sacred. And so the meal itself is made sacred by the prayer, the blessing of the meal. And so when churches got together in the early days, I mean, uh, I've heard a description of the church historically simply as the church is essentially a meal. The church is essentially a table. It's social. And within that, 
There's great spiritual depth and profound relationships and growth. And this is what Luke is telling us, that yeah, they're learning, they're growing in their knowledge, they're praying, but that middle piece, if you think about it, of being together and doing life together, that middle piece is really what gives our prayers and what we're learning a language. I mean, what do we pray for if we're not in people's lives? And how do we process what we're learning if we don't have people in our lives? That middle piece really gives language and depth to our prayers and what we're learning. And so all that to say, uh, a fancy way to get to the most obvious thing that a pastor would say is that you should get involved in some sort of community here. That No one should be alone in their faith. No one should be alone in this town. You may be in exile. You may have moved here from another city. You may be here for school. You may be here in your mind for just two years, one more year, six months to go. You got marks on the wall. I don't know what it is, but you may consider yourself kind of this like, I'm not here for long, and so I'm just going to go through the motions until I get to where I want to be. But God is saying, actually, my desire for you is that while you're here, you put roots down, and that you get to know people, and that you If you're seeking uh, growth in your faith, then you need to be in a community with people. You need to be in circles with people so that uh, you can do so. A couple of barriers to community, and then I want to share a story with you, and we'll close. Uh, They go hand in hand, but one is fear, the fear of being known, uh, truly being known. Uh, There's a verse describing the first people in the book of Genesis, and it says, they were naked and unashamed, which has never been my problem, right? I have all, I've, I've never been unashamed uh, and naked. Like, that's, that's not my normal. I don't know, are you guys with me on that? Like, that, when you read that, you're like, I don't know who those people are, but that's not my story, right? Now, when you're reading stuff like that, it's easy to go, I mean, as a kid, you're thinking, it's just kind of creepy. Was everybody just naked, like running around? Like, that doesn't sound like heaven to me. That sounds like, that sounds like hell, really. Like, and, because um, <laughs> movie naked and real naked, two different things, like, right? So, to quote Donald Miller, I don't want you to pin that on me, but, um, but what the scriptures are saying when it says they were naked and unashamed, it's this language to give us a picture of what it's like to be fully at ease with yourself and to be fully at ease with yourself with others. So there's this real picture of like, you're fully disclosed to me and I'm fully disclosed to you and it's okay. Like we get to a place in our relationships with people where we are quote unquote naked and unashamed about that. Um, most of our friends that live in our building, there are like two people in the building we live in that go to church and they go here. Um, the rest don't. And we, of course, we know and we love these people. And some of them like to uh, party out in front of their unit and we can hear that all night. And that's when they want to hold our daughter, by the way, is when they've had too much. They're like, oh, let me see your daughter. And we're like, hey, let me hold that glass, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> throwing the daughter. And it's just, you know, but anyway. But sometimes I will walk by, you know, to go check the mail at midnight like you do. I'll walk by and they're outside talking. And this is the thing, the, the stuff that they're sharing with one another about their lives, just openly and loudly. Uh, 
I, I hear it and I think, gosh, they're, they're more vulnerable than we are in our small groups. Like they're just saying things about their lives like that we would never say to each other here, right? Because there's some sort of fear of being fully known. Derek Webb, singer, songwriter, uh, said once, hey, you can hold me accountable, that's fine, just so long as you hold me. Like we get into this relationship with people where it's like we start to feel ashamed of who we are because people have stopped holding us. They just reject us. And so there's this fear. And so when a pastor says, you need to get in community, you're like, no, I don't want. That's why, again, it's so much easier for some people in small groups to stay academic and not personal because that would involve letting you in or letting me in. It's too difficult. There's also this real issue, this real barrier to community, especially in faith, is that there's been some injury in your past with church, like the church has caused great pain for you. Um, and it's something you need to know from, from myself, the staff here, and our leaders that we are so conscious of and that we work so hard to ensure that this is a safe place and that we, we cause no injury because the church has been notorious for this throughout history. Just it causes pain in people's lives. And when, again, a pastor says you should be in community, you're like, I'm not doing that. Because the last time I did that, they ratted me out. And uh, I was hurt. I was damaged. Or they held me to such a high standard that I couldn't, I could never win. I was always at fault. And accountability was a scary word because they would stop holding me. Does it make sense? And these are barriers that uh, put us in a place where we don't really want to be in community. And yet, the church is called to build an environment where community is enjoyable, where community is uh, exciting, where it's attractive, uh, where that's where we want to be. And no one should be alone because faith really is too difficult to manage by yourself. The questions and the doubts and the struggles and the things that we're we're unsure about, like we need others around us pushing us and encouraging us. And so it's so easy again in Acts 2.42 to pay attention to the teachings and the prayers and just walk past the whole thing about they just eat together. But it's so important that relationships are formed because you never really know when something is going to come out of that. Uh, Psalms, uh, the Psalm 68.6 is so incredible. It's just very simple. It says, God sets the lonely in families. And this is so true, whether you um, believe this or not, but as again, almost half of my life as a pastor, I've watched this happen so many times, uh, particularly here in this town where people move from other places and they're lonely and they walk into this building a little shell-shocked and they're just searching for a family, but God sets the lonely in families. Like he sets the homeless in tribes. He sets, um, again, just those who are exiles. He sets them in communities. I want to show you a story. Um, Just want you to sit back and enjoy this, and then following this we'll close uh, with communion. But I want to show you a story of a couple here uh, at CCB, uh, Christian Church Buckhead, and uh, just allow them to tell you uh, how God has set them in a family.
Done. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, we're the Travics. Um, I'm John. I'm Amy. And we have a son, and he's over next door. He's playing. Guess what? <laughs> we got right here is a camera. Say hi. Hi. What's your name? What's your last name? <laughs> Do it one more time. Hello, Travis. <laughs> Yay. Yay! Good job, buddy. Good job, Johnny. Um, we moved to Atlanta, Georgia six months ago, right? I got a really, really cool dream job in the city of Atlanta here. And uh, we were forced, not really forced, but we like had the opportunity to move here. And I forced my wife and my son to move here as well. Uh, well, we left the town that we both pretty much grew up in and worked in. So, um, you know, everybody knew everybody. It was a really small town. Um, when we left to come down to Atlanta, I was, I was scared to death because I stay home with our son and I thought I'm never going to speak to another adult again because John's going to go to work and I'm going to be home with my three-year-old. On Yelp, Derek is very popular online. So we got in the car after the first time we went to CCB. I think it was, I mean, we both knew that the other one liked it and felt pretty strongly about it and felt strongly that the sermon was dead on of what we needed to hear and that we needed to go back. So we started going and we haven't stopped. I kind of took the notion that if we were going to do something, we were going to just do it fully. Because at the time we didn't even know if we were going to live here permanently. We were here for a three-month contract. and um, When we first came, we, our, our intentions were to meet friends, honestly. So our specific small group, do we have to talk about which one we go to? Yeah, you can mention that Buckhead! <laughs> yeah, everyone was so welcoming and made you feel like you had been there a hundred times before, which was... And supportive, everybody was like, oh my gosh, you're the animator, this is so cool. Yeah. Made us feel really good about being here and... and Johnny loves it. He's got some serious girlfriends now. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he loves coming. He loves going to church. He loves going to small group. He knows he knows who's going to be at each place and who he's going to play with. And So, um, someone who works at the church, who's the only girl that works at the church, um, she uh, was almost like too nice it kind of almost freaked me out because um, no one up north is that nice <laughs> and uh was so i mean within a couple weeks of meeting her she got in my car and went apartment hunting with me and my son which was not fun and she did it just out of the kindness of her heart and i was eternally grateful for that and that was something we needed because i still didn't know which peach tree i was on so that was really helpful um, and that's just one example of the kind of people that are that are the church is filled with. The event that happened which uh, really made us kind of like just put the stamp on it that we belong here and that this community is just awesome and we bumped into the right people. Our son had a trip to the emergency room and it was probably one of the scariest, the, the scariest, scariest, well birth was pretty scary for me. <laughs> <laughs> 
but it was awful. I'm going with one of the top scariest things in our lives to date. I came home from work and uh, I, my son had been uh, acting really weird and he was screaming and in pain and he got really lethargic and almost he was like passing out and he was not responsive. We called 911. Yeah, he was put into an ambulance and uh, taken away. And the not knowing anybody, the only, the moment I had some clarity in that time was to pray and to reach out for as many people that I knew that would pray for my son. And so I called Lindsay and, um, and my dad, and uh, I knew I knew that that was the right phone call to make because uh, hours later I was contacted by nearly everyone in our small group who was praying and asking if they could be at the hospital or bring us food or do anything. I, I they would have done it, and I know that I know that. I just remember, you know, and, and me and Amy both thought the same thing. Is like, we were so rocked by the support and the love that, that had been here. We were questioning the people where we came from. We're like, man, we don't even have friends back home that would have that would have done what has been done in like, you know, and a that couple was like, of weeks. You're right. That was not even like a month after first meeting people. And uh, as far as the whole experience goes, I just think that it was due to prayer that he was fine because by the time we got to the hospital, his color had changed, his attitude had changed, and they couldn't find anything wrong with him. So, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> One of the advantages of being in the seat that I'm in here at, uh, at Christian Church Buckhead is that I get to, I know that stories like that are not anomalous, that those are, I would say, common. Uh, we just happen to film one of them and show you what it's like uh, on the inside as people get to know each other. And uh, my favorite part of that story is how responsive um, the good people in the South Buckhead area were uh, only four weeks into their uh, uh, John and Amy's move here, like just responding so quickly to needs. And uh, again, part of being a community is not, uh, you may have needs eventually. You may have things where you need somebody to help you carry a burden, but we get into communities so that we can be responsive to those who might need us. Because again, we'll talk about this in a couple weeks, you, you are the answer to somebody's prayers and uh, we can't experience God's work in our life with other people except when we get in the circles, away from these rows and in the circles uh, so that we can start to do life together. The Bible says in Genesis 2, uh, verse 18, it says, "In the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Do you know this verse? I think it's read at weddings a lot. And it's an interesting verse uh, because the word man here, this is so, let me just bore you for a second. The word man here is the word Adam, Adam. But in the Hebrew, it's an ungendered, non-gendered word. It just means humanity. It just means, it actually means dirt. It means earth. It's where we get the term earthling, just a person. 
And the very next verse in the story is God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. A helper. And what happens next is extraordinary. He makes, um, he makes a helper. And then the Hebrew begins to change in the story, whereas it's not good that man should be alone, general, non, non-gendered word. After he makes the helper, they are both gendered. The language changes to his and her. Now, why is that important? Well, there's some great theological history in this that what the writer is trying to tell us is that we are not fully complete, we're not fully human until we have a helper. Right? We don't fully experience life as it's meant to be lived until we have a helper suitable for us. It may be a spouse, it may be friends, it may be roommates, but it also may be your church family. And for many of you as exiles moving in to this town for a while, God wants to set you in a family. And for a time, it needs to be with people who are surrounding you and becoming your helpers. That's when we become fully human. And so let me uh, just challenge you with one thing. Uh, if you got a bulletin when you came in, uh, you'll, you've already read this or noticed this. Um, but coming up in a few weeks, they, we have planned these neighborhood gatherings all throughout the city. Uh, there are two that are not listed, and we'll be adding those in next week with dates and times. But there are these places where you can go and just meet other people from this church who live in your neighborhood. Uh, you can make friends if you're new. There will be small group leaders there where you can inquire about small groups. When they meet, can you get in? Is there a seat left? Um, and again, we've put these all over the city, uptown, midtown, downtown, like everywhere. We even have one in Suwannee. I mean, come on, people. That's right. It's just our way of saying, make the step, take some steps, go and meet some people. Meet some people from this church you live in your neighborhood and begin to get connected. That's my challenge to you. Let me pray and then we'll move to uh, communion and then we'll close in song. God, thank you for today and thank you for, um, for many of us, this familiar text. Uh, the church was devoted to some things and one of those was just being together. Um, and God, we pray, um, I pray that everyone in this room finds a home that whether it's at this church or some other church in the city, uh, God, that they find a spiritual home, that they find a place where people can get around them and carry them and share burdens and do life together. God, I pray for those who are lonely. I pray for those who feel isolated. I pray for those who don't feel fully human because there's no help in their life. And so, God, I pray that you move in this congregation that you surprise us with incredible community. And God's stories like the Travics, we pray for more of those. We pray for people who need uh, the things that we can give. We pray that you supply us with the things that people need and give us the courage to be your hands and feet, not just in this building on Sunday mornings, but out there in the neighborhood. The whole world is the parish. And so we pray that We carry the burden of our communities and the people that live around us in seeking out ways to bring community to people's lives. God, thank you for the bread and the juice that symbolizes your son, his 
life, his death, his resurrection, the hope of his return. God, we take this uh, as a reminder each week of your grace and mercy and your promise uh, to renew the world, to renew our city, and to renew our lives. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you're new with us, we have four tables, two in the